Father, as we come to look at your word today, I want to thank you for the confidence that we can have in the text that you have given to us. The confidence, Lord, that we can know what your word is. It is amazing to look through history and see how uniform your word has been right from the very beginning. To see how much, Lord, we can, we can look at the different uh, geographical areas and, and the traditions, Lord, where, where from, from scribe to scribe, your text was copied and passed down. And Lord, we can, uh, 2,000 years later, look at that. And we can see just how uniform it is, Lord, and how, how we can have such confidence in the words that we're reading. And even, Lord, there's a uniformity in the areas where we can't have the same level of confidence historically. And so as we look at a passage today, Lord, that we, we can't have the same level of confidence in this passage as we do in almost every other passage except for one. And again, Lord, just the fact that we know that for a certainty, that, that this and, and one other passage in the New Testament are, are the main two that we can see throughout all history there has been an uncertainty about. And so, Lord, I just I thank you that that's a reminder that we can have so much confidence in your word. There is such a vast amount of, of historical tradition and evidence, Lord, that you've given to us, and we thank you for that. You didn't have to. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have humility today as we look at this particular passage, that we would look at Christ, and, Lord, that we would strive and seek to become like him. We pray it in your name. Amen. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John 7, John 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you the first thing that you're going to see when you open up your Bibles there. You're going to see some version of this statement, and it's going to be in brackets, the statement that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 8.11. We should probably talk about that first. To do that, we need to talk about the fine men who put together the, the English Bible, the King James Bible. They were translating uh, from a Greek text of the New Testament that was put together by a man named Erasmus. And so that's how it works. We have parts of ancient manuscripts and different pieces, different parts that we have, we have historically, they've been preserved. And then what we do is using those parts and the way that many of them overlap and, and, and come together and they reinforce one another, using those parts, we're able to make the whole. And so when it came to the Gospels and it came to, um, in the 1500s, Erasmus working on a Greek New Testament, the Greek New Testament that sparked the Reformation, Erasmus was working from two manuscripts mainly to write the Gospels, both of which, the two manuscripts that he was working from at the time, they were only about 300 years old. So they, they were only coming from about the 12th century. So that's, he's working from manuscripts, if you think about this, that were separated from the original Bible by almost a thousand years. And he included this passage here in John. And so this passage was included in the King James Bible. Since Erasmus created his Greek text, 
in the 1500s, we have since then discovered thousands. So he worked from two. We have discovered thousands of New Testament manuscripts. We have copies of New Testament manuscripts that now date all the way back to just 100 years or so after the New Testament was written. So instead of his, which were a 1,000, we have, we have cut that significantly, and we have found whole manuscripts. So we have, in other words, a lot more information than Erasmus did. And here's the thing, in those earliest manuscripts that we found, this story either wasn't in those manuscripts or... In the case of this particular story, John 7, it either wasn't in the manuscripts or there were references to it or parts of it, but they weren't here. They were in either earlier in John or they were actually in a completely different gospel. They were in Luke 21. We have it here, though, because of the tradition of the English Bible and where Erasmus had it. So, having more to work from then Erasmus, we know more. And this is, the, this is the fascinating thing. What we know now is that there are really only two major spots that, that we know now were either certainly or almost certainly not in the original texts there. And, and it's this story and it's the ending of the Gospel of Mark after Mark chapter 16, verse 8. That's it. That's it. So we know now from, from, from all of the evidence that, that, that we have accumulated that it's really just those two spots. Now, Erasmus had about 11, and we, we know this too, 11 other verses, not, not, not sections, but literally just 11 other verses that he did not have uh, resources for, um, some of which... What he did was he actually translated, he didn't have the Greek manuscripts, so he took the Latin Vulgate version and he wrote it in Greek. And so when we actually found the Greek ones, we realized that no, he didn't quite translate that correctly. Something was wrong, something was off. But these are the only two big ones right here. And so that should give us a lot of confidence. As, as I prayed earlier, that should give us a lot of confidence now that, that we know for sure all the rest of it. Accurate, But here's the thing, even Erasmus knew that there were questions about both of those passages. And that should actually give us even a little more confidence. Erasmus knew that there was doubt about those. So he had two manuscripts. Only one of the manuscripts he worked from had this story in it. The other one didn't. And have a scribe ending of the Gospel of Mark. So all it's done is it's confirmed for us that even as we have found thousands and thousands and thousands of more pieces of the New Testament, there has been a, an amazingly uniform understanding of what the New Testament is, including an amazingly uniform understanding of these two stories that have always been a little, it's been a little uncertain whether they're in there or not. Peter Williams, in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels?, says, we now have a thousand times more manuscripts than were used by Erasmus in his first edition. And as the gap between the earliest discovered manuscripts and the original writings has narrowed by nearly a thousand years, not much has changed. 
with just a fraction of the information we now have and with only late manuscripts, Erasmus already knew about the most significant textual questions in the Gospels. So this should give us a lot of confidence that what we have is the Word of God. And the fact that this story is here with this caveat, it doesn't change that. But we got to look at this story. We're, we're here now in John. And there are ancient manuscripts that have parts of this story in other spots, either earlier in John or in Luke 21. It's pretty certain this particular story. It's pretty certain because of the language that John never uses anywhere else. And there's some references that he never uses that sort of language anywhere else. But again, because the story's so short, I have to say it's pretty certain. I couldn't tell you for absolute certain, but it's pretty certain. It's a lot more certain, though, that this is a true story about Jesus. Church history is almost entirely in agreement, going back to the very, very early, the ancient uh, church. There, there, there's a pretty much a completely uniform agreement that whether this is a story John wrote, this is a true story that happened of Jesus. We see it referenced, again, in some of the early New Testament manuscripts, just in different places. But we have several ancient sources outside of Scripture as well. So even if this particular text that we're looking at today is not from the original copies of John's Gospel, which is pretty certain, it is a true story about Jesus. It is worth looking at. And we do have to recognize that it has remained in the, the, the text that has been passed down through uh, the millennium, not just the centuries, but the millennium. So we ought to take a look at this. When I preached the Gospel of Mark, I did this several years ago. When I preached the Gospel of Mark, I did not preach the ending after verse 8 because it seems very clear that that is a later addition to the Gospel both because of the textual evidence and because of the theological evidence of that passage. This passage here this morning is not that clear. This passage is a historical... Again, we can say that it's pretty certain, but we can't say that it is certain. As Craig Blomberg in his massive book, it's about this thick the historical reliability of the New Testament says, he says this is a story that's looking for a home in the New Testament. And he points out that although it likely wasn't written by John, it certainly fits into the self-mentions in John 20 of the many other signs that Jesus performed that weren't recorded. So that's my caveat, but we are going to look at this story today. John chapter 7, his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So we're going to break this story down into three parts this morning. Three parts. The first thing we're going to look at here is the setup. The setup. Make no mistake, as we read this story, this is a setup. As the famous Admiral Akbar once said, it's a trap. First, we read the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had But as the saying goes, it takes two to tango. So if they ask the question, where's the guy? In the law, which they're about to reference, both of the parties involved need to be brought to justice. In fact, in the law, in both Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, the man is the focus of the passage. So already, our, our eyebrows should be raised when they bring just the woman, and they seem to be letting the man off the hook here. So that's the first thing that should cause us to wonder. The second thing, though, is the fact that they brought her to Jesus and then asked him this question, so what do you say? If they had actually caught her in adultery and they were actually concerned about justice in this situation, why would they have brought her to Jesus? Jesus doesn't have, I mean, they don't believe that Jesus has any authority. They don't believe that he should be able to do anything. They don't believe that he should be able to handle a situation like this. So if they were truly concerned about justice in this situation, why would they have done this at all? But then we're told, just in case we didn't start wondering about those inconsistencies, we're told, hey, they're trying to test Jesus. This is a setup. That's all it is. In, in their minds, this is going to be a lose-lose. In their minds, there is no way that he's going to be able to get out of this. It's a trap. After asking him this question, I mean, you could almost see the smirks on their faces. I mean, they may, they may, well, they may as well have had somebody who was there to jump out and be like, gotcha. <laughs> there is no way out here. Because think about it. If he says no, then in their minds, he has defied the law of God. To execute someone who's caught in adultery. So if he says no, then he defies the law of God. Publicly, he's contradicting the law. Yes, you should execute this woman. So he has to, right? Otherwise, his very credentials that he claimed, they would be undermined by his actions so if he said to execute her, he's got some other problems, though. So if he says don't execute her, then it looks like he's standing against the law. But what if he... Big problem. One, according to D.A. Carson, there is very little evidence, historically, there's very little evidence that this kind of capital punishment was actually carried out very often in first century Palestine. 
especially in urban areas. So even though it was in the law, it, this was not something that was done very often, and especially not in urban areas. So if he said to execute her, then that could be a very unpopular and a very radical choice uh, among those who are watching. And so the leaders would think if he says that, he's going to be pushing away a lot of people. It's going to be a divisive choice on his part. But even trickier than that is the fact that if he does say to execute her, the, the Jewish leaders are almost certain to use that to bring the wrath of Rome down on Jesus. Because here's the thing. Don't forget how they ended up killing Jesus. They had to get Rome to agree to crucify him. Why? Because they technically didn't have that power. They couldn't do that. The Roman prefect is technically the only one who has the authority to sentence somebody to death. So if Jesus says, no, you must straight to Rome and be like, hey, this guy is putting people to death. He's taking your power. He's taking your authority. So they think that they have set Jesus up perfectly to fail. Either he undercuts his commitment to the law or he comes into the crosshairs of Rome. Either way, in their minds, this takes care of Jesus. He's done. So that's the setup. Now we want to look at the response here. He could have either been writing or he could have been drawing something. So what was it? What did he write on the... I'm going to give you guys the best, most honest, and frankly, the only acceptable answer to this question. We have no idea. No idea what he did in this moment. Guys, I read pages and pages about this. I looked at several sermons about this. But you know what? Anything and everything that is said about what Jesus did on the ground thing. I'll speculate. be tempted that he wrote a verse from Jeremiah or, or he wrote out their sins or, or you know sometimes the Romans would write out their sentences before they spoke and, and what I heard when I heard that explained that way it was really compelling because if that's what he did then this is what it could have meant but what just happens there well, sure, if that's what he did, then this is what it meant. But we come back to the point. We have no idea if that's what he did. We have no clue what he did. He could have been playing hangman in the dirt. Who knows? All this time speculating about something we can't know about keeps us from figuring out what we can know from the story. By writing on the ground, he pushed them to push the issue. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, we read. And as they continued to ask him. So 
His writing on the ground, what it does is it highlights for us, they want him to be trapped. They're not going to handle this themselves. They are pushing for him to walk into their trap. They have an agenda, and their agenda is to get Jesus in trouble. Finally, though, once it's clear that they're only here to get a response from Jesus, he responds. What exactly is he saying here? It's another hard question. Trap Jesus. They were not concerned in actually getting justice in this situation. This woman is just a convenient tool to use to get Jesus in trouble. So what Jesus does in this story is he actually turns the trap right back on them. His hypocrisy. Okay, so she broke the law. He says, any who are without sin cast the first stone. Now, what just happened there? We've got to be really clear on. He did not just reject the law here. But remember how there's a couple of things here that don't add up. One, if she was caught in the act, where's the man? And two, even if she was caught in the act, what's the point of bringing her to Jesus and making a public event of her sin? In other words, if this was truly just a trial, and it was a just and a righteous trial against the woman, it was a trial according to the law, then they're handling with the law. If that was the case, they ought to go ahead and just finish it. So he calls their bluff. The law in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 7 says that the hand of the witness should be the first to cast the stone. And Jesus, what he's doing here is he is questioning their credentials. Their credentials as witnesses. And that is a big deal in the law as well. It's actually a huge deal in the law. Exodus 23 verse 1 says, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. So, the point that Jesus is making here when he says, anyone who is without sin cast the first stone. He's saying, if they are truly sinless witnesses, motivations in bringing these charges are pure. Fulfill the law yourself. So he's turning it back on them. If your motivations, being witnesses to this act and bringing her forward to this trial, if they're pure, if you can say that they are without sin, do it. Are they willing to go so far here that they're just in what they're doing, so just that they would kill this woman? One commentator puts it this way. For anyone to take part in a stoning on the basis of such evidence would be to incur the guilt of joining with the wicked. The words of Jesus are both an appeal to conscience. Own lives might very well be at stake. So that's a clearer understanding of the story. Is that justice against 
passage is used, isn't it? This passage is used, well, if anyone without sin, you be the one to cast the first stone. And so the idea of that is, well, if you have no sin, if you're perfect, then you could enact justice. But that's not actually what it's saying here. But that's how some take it, because I'm a sinner. I have no rights to hold another to justice. It's usually either followed or it's preceded by, who am I to judge? And, and you know, a lot of times we find that compelling, don't we? We find that kind of argument compelling because there's a truth in it. We are sinners. So how could I point out the failures of others? I have sinned, so how could I point out the sins of others? There's something about that logic that, that, that hits us, doesn't it? And we, we can use that logic as a weapon, too. When a husband points out his wife's sin, what's the first response that so often pops into her head? Well, okay, you want to go there. Or the wife points out the husband's sin. His mouth is what? Well, you're no... So we use this argument of because you have sin, you have no right to enact God's justice. There's an emotional pull to reading this passage that way. But here's the thing. Jesus is not pointing out that no sinner has the right to enact God's law and justice against another sinner. I mean, that would be undercutting Scripture itself. I mean, from the very beginning, it can only be sinners who hold sinners to the law of God. There has never been a situation except for Jesus where a perfect person held imperfect people to the law, has there? It's impossible. So that's not what he's saying. He's pointing out that, in, that these men are not trying to pursue God's justice. They cannot say in what they're doing here that they are sinless. They cannot say that they are not malicious witnesses here. They cannot say that their testimony against this woman is pure because it's not. They are not interested in honoring the law. They are not interested in glorifying God's holiness. They are not faithful witnesses. That's what you should be to uphold the law. You should be interested in God's holiness, in His glory. You should be faithful and honest as a witness, no, they have cut corners, they have skipped steps. They're not looking for what God's law is looking for here. God's law is looking to bring people to a realization of their need for God. They're not interested in that. No, actually, I mean, the, the terrible irony here is they're actually interested in the complete opposite of that, aren't they? Because who are they talking to? They're interested in using the law... Because they're talking to the Son of God. They're doing just the opposite. But they're too blind to see it. And so when Jesus says, anyone here is without sin, He is pointing out to them that none of them are there because they care about God's law. None of them are there because they care about justice in the case of this woman. None of them have right and pure motives. They are... A tried to trap Jesus with 
they are condemned as malicious witnesses. And so that's what he's saying to them. And it cuts them. That's the power that Jesus has. He sees into their hearts. He calls out what they're doing. He hits their consciences in the moment. He puts them on the spot publicly. And the story says that the older ones went away first. Commentators point out that the ones who would bear the greatest responsibility. So if Jesus is right, and he is, is sees that and as they weigh between the two of them and they realize no this who's going to stand responsible for it it's going to be the older ones among them the elders so so that's the story what's the point that's our third thing this morning Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, that can be taken in our culture. And, and if, if you bought into the first understanding that he was sitting there saying, Hey, people who are sinners can't, you know, they can't judge against other sinners. Then here you would go, and Jesus just proved that. He said, I'm not, I'm not here to do that either. But that's not the point. Again, the point is, has no one condemned you in this trial? Has no one condemned you in this situation? What he's doing is he's now looking up from whatever he was doing here that allowed the time to pass. He's looking up and he's going, are there witnesses? Witnesses? That's what the law demands. I don't see a single true witness. So in this instance, if there are no witnesses, then he couldn't possibly condemn her according to the law. Because there's no witnesses. And so at this point, if he were to now condemn her, he would be going against what the law requires which are witnesses to the crime, but what he has proven is that the people who said they were witnesses, that's not what they were doing. The question isn't whether she sinned or not. Who was actually... That's... How awful is that, guys? How awful is that? To use God's own words to try and drive him away. This is what can happen when you use God's word for your own agenda. Can't it? That you know what God's word says because that's what you're comfortable with. That's what helps you. That's what provides you with what you think you need for this life. So you could actually use God's word to drive God himself away. The law was clearly being abused here. So the story ends with this reminder here. 
One of the reasons why it does seem to fit here in John is there's a reminder here that Jesus is not here at this moment to condemn the world. I mean, he could certainly, couldn't he? You thought about that? It's his right to condemn the world. But then again, we ought to keep in mind that at any moment in the past few thousand years, He's already his people for thousands of years, hasn't he? And that's been his right to do because God has a plan. And God's plan was to overlook and not condemn those sins at that time so that at the proper time, those sins could be paid for. That's what Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 tells us. That he passed over these former sins so that in Christ, God could be both the just and the justifier. So he's already been passing over. He's already been not condemning sins that he certainly could have condemned. He certainly, with, it's within his right at this moment, even without witnesses, we need to keep that in mind. Even without witnesses, it is within his rights because of who he is in this moment when it's just him and the woman, he could condemn her. He could put her to death. He could do that. It would have been, it would have been perfect. If he had done that, then we as children of God would have rejoiced in the justice of that. But he didn't. Because he's already told us in John 3. And we can have complete confidence about what he said in John 3. There's no about that. That he did not come to condemn the world. But that we may have life. The world's condemned already. So we end here with this gospel reminder, this gospel reminder that Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to give life, but God's character isn't going to change. When it comes to his law, he will perfectly fulfill it. He will perfectly live up to it. Again, this whole story here is not a story about Jesus going soft on a sinful adulterer. This story is a story about his relationship to the law of Moses and their relationship to the law of Moses. Jesus will perfectly live up to the law. God He will not simply overlook sins that break his law just to overlook sins. He will not go soft on sinners. When the day comes... For you to stand before God and be judged for your sins. God will have all the witness that he needs in and of himself. You and I will be laid bare and everything that's in us 
every single thing we've done, every single thing we've thought, every single thing we've said, it will be there and there will be no argument about it. There will be no question of the veracity, the truthfulness of the witnesses because we'll be standing there with God and we'll be looking at it and he'll be looking at it and we'll go, yes, And on that day, from what we've seen in this story, Jesus will not go against the law of God. Which is a terrifying thought. Because you and I will have nothing that we can, we can claim on that day. The evidence is going to be laid out. You know your heart. You know your mind. You know what you've thought and what you've done. On that day, accept that we will have to accept the judgment of this person that we're reading about today, the king. So we end here, though, with this beautiful picture. He doesn't condemn her in this moment because God's plan is to make a way for his law to be perfectly held, perfectly fulfilled. He will not bend his character a single inch, but he will make it possible for you and I to stand on that day with all of our sin exposed and not be condemned. We'll be declared righteous will be declared free from the judgment of those sins, even though they're right there in front of us. We'll be declared free from the judgment of those sins, and God will still be declared perfectly just in allowing us that freedom. Why? Because Jesus died for our punishment for those sins. The, the punishment that we would deserve on that day to the law that God will not bend on because of his holiness will be declared righteous because Jesus on the cross. Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus today, if he is your savior, this is what you mean when you say that he is your savior. He made him to be no sin. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. So we see here in this story that Jesus will uphold the law. But we also see that God's intention is to save us from the condemnation that is rightfully ours under the law. Isn't that beautiful? That's your hope. We have to end here with this gospel reminder. And guys, I cannot tell you how often we need to be reminded of the gospel here as we close, I'm going to talk to you guys as your pastor. What I mean by that is that I know, I know you guys, and you know me. This is a room full of people who know the Bible. Y'all, I'm blessed to have a group of people who listen to me preach who, y'all, y'all know the Bible really well, and you know theology, and yet I also know that each one of you is at risk daily 
of forgetting the gospel. You're at risk of forgetting the gospel when a friend or a family member treats you wrong. You're at risk of forgetting the power of the gospel to grant you forgiveness when you wronged God. And mercy, even when you didn't deserve it, you're at risk of forgetting the gospel when somebody wrongs you. Of forgetting the gospel when you've had a great day. Healthy. You feel like you've got it together and the challenges that are coming, you're going to be able to take them on. You are at risk of forgetting the gospel. It matters. You are helpless. And in a moment, all those things can be taken from you. You are at risk of forgetting the gospel when you are overwhelmed with worry and anxiety about this world, about your health, about your children, about this life, you are at risk of forgetting the gospel. You're at risk when you think that this is hopeless and it will never change. I'm saying that to you guys. I'm saying it to myself as well. I know myself well enough to know I'm at risk of forgetting the gospel. It's so easy, isn't it? This is why we have to be called back again and again to the God who is capable of not just saving you now. He's capable of changing who you are at the most fundamental level. He is capable of making you acceptable. Acceptable in the sight of his perfect law. He's capable of making you that. And if you're honest with yourself, you know how impossible that task is. He is capable of taking you from this life to his presence for eternity. He is capable of everything. And so we end with this gospel reminder. This is... This is our Savior. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that you have. This is the hope that we cling to. You can forgive others when they've wronged you. When you are struggling with worry and anxiety, you can set your heart on Christ. You can think on honorable, whatever is beautiful. You can think on these things. When you think that it is hopeless, you can look to Christ. Don't Forget the gospel in the face of everything else that's going on in our lives. Instead, let the gospel truth of who you are in Jesus Christ change everything about you in this world. Change who you are when people wrong you. Change who you are when there are things that are worrisome. Change who you are when you're struggling. You are Christ's. Sin is not being overlooked, but Jesus has come to make you his. Live that way. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. Father, we are at risk of forgetting the gospel every day. Lord, we've been, we've been talking with people um, about the concept of diligence. Use that word a lot when you talk about how to live a wise life. We are to be diligent. And Lord, uh, we understand that diligence is one of those words that has a meaning to it. You, you don't have to be diligent about things that only happen once. And you don't have to be diligent about things that are easy and just happen. No, we have to be diligent about things that happen a lot, over and over again. And we have to be diligent about things that are difficult and hard. Remembering who we are in Christ, remembering the gospel in certain moments can be hard for us. But Father, you've given us the strength through the Spirit to be diligent. I pray that this week each and every one of us would look at our lives and would say, where are we not being diligent to remember the gospel? Lord, that we would write it down, that we would address in the power of the Spirit the change that you are calling us to make in the gospel, and we would be diligent. Because we see in this story, we see the lengths to which you went to uphold your law so that we might be freed in you, freed to live for you, Father. Help us to not forget the freedom that you have called us to in Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.